we're here. Wait. You just destroyed the microphone. Hold on. Too much cafecito, Kevin. <laughs> hey, don't put that off on me. That was all you. That was all Robert Deagle. All right. 32 Emmy nominations. We're flying. Who? Me? I just pulled up the variety page. And at me came Game of Thrones. God's got it. 32 Emmy nominations. That's a lot. Boom. Yeah. I'm excited to see what happens in September. Could be a clean sweep. We were just talking about someone that has hit a plateau. Right. Mr. James L. Jones. James Earl Jones? Everyone's father. That's right. He is everyone. We were just talking about that before we started. And we're going to get into the topic today. It's going to be a great show. Uh, We have the uh, Emmy-winning composer Carlos Rafael Rivera as our guest today. Uh, Interviewed by both of us. First time. First time. One-two punch. Not the last time. He got the screen heat and the screen uppercut, and everybody everybody got in on the action there. But screen heat Miami. It was a great conversation. And Tag so, team. Back again. We're doing the thing, so so let's begin. Uh, so, godless. Yeah. Godless. Godless. He is a, the Emmy Award-winning composer for the Netflix hit series Godless. It was nominated for 12 Emmys. Yeah. Won three. Won three, including Composition. By, by our good friend. He is a, a local professor at the University of Miami, teaches film and media composition at the Frost School of Music at the U. So that's uh, it's exciting to see our, our homeboys doing big things around the world. That's fantastic. Yes. So we're, we're excited to jump into that. Screen Heat Miami brought to you, of course, by Kajik Multimedia. Cinevision. The Miami Media and Film Market. And... Kamakol. I gave a little espresso shot on that one. Let's jump in. Let's jump in. So we were talking about James Earl Jones. Why were we talking about him having all these kids in movies? James Earl Jones apparently is Luke's father, right? That's right. I am your father. Uh, He's also the father in The Lion King. Simba's dad. They're having a big summer. They are. And uh, they changed a bunch of voices, but they didn't mess with, uh, with Jones. Like, not, with, not with daddy. <laughs> no, don't mess with big daddy. <laughs> I'm everyone's father. You can't get rid of me. <laughs> and then uh, we started to talk about that because very exciting news coming out of Paramount Studios. The sequel, long-awaited sequel. Coming to. Number two. Very cute. <laughs> America. America, which will fe- f- feature many of the returning cast members, including uh, the king of Zamunda. James Earl Jones. Another father. Another father to Prince Akim, which is going to, of course, going to be played again by by the, the very talented Eddie Murphy. And also bringing back, way back from the 90s, Arsenio Hall. Woo, 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 woo. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be great. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, a lot of the, the main cast is, is coming back. John Amos. John Amos, Sherry Hadley, who plays the the love interest in the film, is coming back. And there's going to be some new cast members, which I'm very excited. This is going to be a, like an all-star cast of comedians. So I am I am excited to see that uh, Leslie Jones will be playing a role in the film. She's hilarious, an SNL star that's uh, that's been dipping her toes into movies for the past few years as well. So good to see Leslie back. And they just signed on, apparently, according to the trades in Hollywood Reporter, Tracy Morgan will be involved. It's going to be a tour de force. That's going to be a tour de force. That's <laughs> what I'm talking about. I'm going to be in this movie with my boy Eddie, and we just going to crack jokes. There ain't going to be no script. <laughs> we just going to sit down and say funny stuff like that barbershop scene. Aha! Aha! 
Remember that joke? I do. <laughs> I that joke. But nothing tops sexual chocolate. Oh my gosh. Sexual chocolate. That was that was one of the funniest moments. That was a musical moment. That was a musical moment in the middle. <laughs> sexual chocolate. You see how we bring it around full circle? We do. Yeah. Maybe we should change the name of our podcast. <laughs> I don't know. Well, change it just for this one. There you go. AKA sexual chocolate. Boom. Boom goes Homage. the dynamite. That's right. Homage. <laughs> and speaking of music. Yes. Music. What's- we were sent a song. Yes. We have a, a loyal subscriber and follower to the channel. Let's give a shout out to Mercedes. Mercedes. The song. I know I'm into you. We love this song. Yeah. So we are going to give it to you. That's right, Mercedes. Thank you for submitting this song uh, to be part of today's podcast. Apropos, because we are talking about music and music composition today. So we're going to play a little cut of that track and we'll be right back. Send me away. You got me to love you. Even Thinking of you, torture is torture. jam and thank you mercedes yeah thanks thanks please keep sending us more stuff whatever you send us so so long as it's not too explicit we, we may play it. but it's got to be good this was good to this be was good this was good this is talent we might have to use this for something else maybe well let's uh let's set it up with mercedes if you're listening mercedes call 1-800 mix a lot <laughs> just kidding <laughs> you know how to get to us <laughs> talk about old school <laughs> so so yeah we are we are here talking today about music the music industry the 50th anniversary of woodstock recently yeah which was an, an interesting thing to to understand how that sort of genre was created of these music epic music festivals in this one summer in woodstock and they they tried to get it going for the 50th anniversary apparently they couldn't bring it back they couldn't bring it back what's going on it's woodstock it's iconic and there's so many music festivals you know around the world that seem to just happen i don't know if it had anything to do with that debacle in the caribbean but you know <laughs> fire <Let's> change <laughs> the game yeah everyone's as soon as you say music festival it's like whoa Hey, who's behind that? <laughs> but you figure Woodstock, that's a name, that's a brand. Yeah. That's something that's recognizable. If not the biggest. I yeah. mean, they really did spark off, you know, the modern music festival. The, yeah. And, and music in general. You know, how many artists that played at Woodstock then yeah. went on to become legends? I mean, maybe it's a change of the times that we're talking about that. Maybe it's a change in, in genre and taste. You know, maybe that whole idea of this epic rock music festival is just not as popular anymore. Yeah, well, you know, rap music, hip hop music, right? You know, became the number one music in America mm. about a year and a half ago, mm. and so 
you know, there has been a dynamic change. Sure. But I would think the and I don't know exactly who was going to be on the set there at Woodstock, but I would think that that would be a big integrative part of the evolution of Woodstock because music then was all about pushing the boundaries Mm. and the musicians that played there at that Woodstock from Janis Joplin to Jimi Hendrix. I mean, a lot of those musicians were pushing the boundaries. Right. So I don't think it was necessarily just about rock music per se. Mm. I think it was about music that pushed the limits, not just musically, but you know, the music then was, you know, a sign of the times. Yeah. And that created, you know, the sort of communal experience of people coming together and enjoying, you know, this sort of shared experience of music and culture and life and sex, drugs and rock and roll, right? <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. This is awesome, man. <laughs> but, you know, I remember in the 90s, they did bring it back. There was a 25th anniversary. I remember bands like Metallica playing and like it was like 94 and then they did it for the 30th in 99. Mm-hmm. You had Bush and you had Live and all these big 90s bands that are they're actually touring together now. And then they brought it back again in 99. You had bands like Bush and Live, and and now they're actually both on tour with Our Lady Peace. They were just in Miami recently. Yeah, they were. Yeah, I and, missed that one. Yeah, but, you know, it's the, the fun days of, of the, the mosh pitting. <laughs> I remember from, the, from that Adam Sandler soundtrack in the 90s where he had the goat playing the uh, the beaten up goat. You remember that? Well, I missed that one. Oh, my God. It was so good. And there's a bunch of young guys coming, kind of teasing this goat that's tied to a truck. There's an old man that beats him with a stick. Maybe they'll remake that one. You, you remember those uh, those fun audio comedy albums that Sandler used to put out like every yeah. four or five years? Yeah. The Turkey Song, the Christmas, uh, well, sorry, the Hanukkah Song. And then he would have these sketches. And one of them was a, was apparently an abused goat that used to live in the back of a truck. And, and kids would come and poke fun at him before they went to a concert. We got to get Sandler on our podcast. Oh, I would love to get Sandler. We would... I. I can do some Sandler, but it's not the same as having the real guy. Excuse me, guys, but what I would like to contribute to this conversation is that back then you could kind of say whatever you want because there wasn't that social media that would just get you in all this trouble and then you and hashtag apologize for everything. And before I used to just do my goat skits and it was like, you know, really fun. I would just tell people like, oh man, you guys are going to go to the concert. Yeah, much pitting. That's fun. Hey, by the way, can you let me go this because the old man, you know, he likes to beat me with a stick. You know, I can't say that anymore because then everyone gets upset at me and says that I'm <laughs> insulting the goat community and I have to apologize. So I don't know what to do. So I just go to Netflix and make a billion dollars. Thank you. How much did he get from Netflix? Oh, my God. He is he is raking it up. He Wasn't is like the king of comedy, literally, at Netflix. 100 million comedy yeah. I mean, the Aniston movie apparently did really well, that romantic comedy. Uh-huh. So yeah. he's, uh, he's, he's doing his thing. You know, I think they really found their niche there. Mm, think mm. so. Yeah. I think so. But so, back yeah. to Netflix niches. Oh, niches, niches, right? Godless, I mean, godless, yeah. A great show for Netflix. You know, Netflix, I think, is still you know the top in terms of the streamers. I think, I think everyone is still kind of chasing that that sort of platform. But but they're pushing hard. You know, I just saw that Apple TV is going to be launching in November, uh, nine ninety nine a month, which is going to be now apparently three dollars cheaper than Netflix. But then you also got Disney Plus coming, which is six ninety nine for the basic. Yeah. You can upgrade. Imagine for the same price as Netflix on Disney Plus, you can also get Hulu and ESPN Plus. It's the new price cable. wars. Yeah, streaming wars, price wars. So my question is, how is how is Apple TV going to fit in the middle of that? You know, obviously it's it's a huge company. It's it's a powerful company. They've got the funding to do it. But how's that going to work? We have to see what they're coming with. 
what are they? Yeah, what's the content? I mean, so far it seems like they're not launching with a ton of new shows. I don't know how deep, you know, if they were able to license a bunch of stuff as well that we don't really know about. Well, I'm sure. Right. Yeah, they, I mean, there's no way you can do it without acquisitions. But yeah, it actually says, you know, if you look at the Variety article, we'll bow November with a, quote, small selection of shows. Hmm. So it's going to be more boutique, I guess. But still, why would you pay $9.99 for boutique? For boutique. You know, you want... You want, as they say, a plethora of choices, especially as, you know, they're going to be chased also by Warner Media, HBO Max, NBC Universal hasn't even ramped up their streaming service yet. Yeah. So, you know, how how far does the consumer want to stretch that entertainment dollar? That's a lot. I mean, you have enough streamers. You got, now you have a cable bill. Exactly. Like you're, you're talking, if you get all of this, you're talking what? Like plus the the cost of internet. You're talking a hundred bucks a month. Yeah. Amazon Prime. Right. Ooh. Now. I'm sure that, you know, one advantage that, for example, that I think Warner Media would have in NBC Universal is obviously, you know, you're talking about AT&T and Comcast, which are two of the biggest Internet service providers. So they can kind of sneak their platforms in and give it an extra little boost. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're Apple, you don't really have that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So the ecosystem. Yeah. The ecosystem is different. I mean, Amazon has Prime. You know, everyone loves shopping online now, getting their groceries. Mm -hmm. You know, you get hit up at Whole Foods now every time. So they have, you know, for them, it's just, you know, the content is a lost leader to get you to buy groceries on our platform. And not just that, you know, the shipping. shipping. I mean, there's so many advantages. Yeah, there's so physical advantages to go with the digital asset. Mm -hmm. So that's that's going to be interesting to see what happens. But, man, I'm telling you, those those streaming wars are not going to slow down anytime soon. I wonder if that's it's going to chop down the cable bills. Well, I think that's the problem is that people are, you know, I think at, at still at a, at a fairly decent clip abandoning uh, cable in preference of just Internet service with a couple of OTT mm-hmm. uh, streamers. And, and so what is going to happen is, again, I do what I foresee is that the streamers are going to replace traditional cable. But I think it's going to level out. You know, I think there's going to be a leveling out. Mm. And also, you know, and this is what I was saying just a minute ago. Right. The cable price is going to have to come down in order to compete with the streamers. And when I say leveling out, I mean, because you have HBO, you have HBO Go. So I'm sure they're looking at the numbers Mm. and they're looking at the numbers in terms of their cable subscription going down, their streamer going up. Right. And there's going to have to be, you know, this water balance Mm. after a certain point. Right. So that'd be interesting to see. I mean, I think eventually all of what we consider live TV is going to be folded into some one of those services, which you can already do, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's just going to keep happening more and more until, you know, the idea of a cable subscription is going to go, you know, the way of the 8-track or whatever. Yeah, well, let's see what happens. But it's funny because it's, it's interesting because I think that what's going on with the streamers now is probably as exciting and unnerving of a time for the entertainment industry as when they first introduced this idea of cable television. Oh, right. Because yeah. all of a sudden you went from having three, four channels mm-hmm. to having 50 channels, 60 <laughs> channels. 100. 24 hours a day. Yeah. I don't remember, you know, we were probably more a parent's generation. At a certain time, they would just shut the television off. Like, you would get the bars and, you know, the last thing you would see is like, you know, they would play like the Star Spangled Banner. You see the American flag. Right. And this concludes our broadcast day. <laughs> Kids don't get that. They're like, what? Things done change. <laughs> done change. Changing. Yeah. So in terms of broadcast, I think we can switch it over to this really fun interview that we did with Carlos. I'm so 
excited for people to hear that. Yeah. It's going to be really great. It's amazing. This is one of the most in-depth. Oh, yeah. It just went on and on. Just even if you're not a, a, per, a music person per se, just he's a film and cinema aficionado, really understands storytelling. We had some really great conversations. This, yeah, this one is certainly for everyone. This is definitely for everyone. So stay tuned for Carlos Rafael Rivera and we'll be right back. And uh, things are going very well in the world, but uh, it's also on fire. Oh, no. What are we doing wow, now? that's great if we could all talk Let's like that. Play some I think we're going to have to do that. <laughs> Especially when it gets deep and personal, we'll cry together. Yeah. Um, there you so, go. But that, <laughs> whoa. Well, we could take it there. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, on man. a very special Screen Heat Miami. On a very <laughs> <laughs> it's like a telenovela. Yeah. All right, we're here in the interview portion of today's podcast for Screen Heat Miami with the Emmy-winning music composer Carlos Rafael Rivera. Welcome, Carlos. Hey, man. Man, I love hey, the way that you said that. Yes, I, I put a little extra cafecito in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm drinking some cafecito right now. Yeah. Was that a little extra Cuban, a little extra Puerto oh, Rican? Oh, that was definitely Cuban. <laughs> Speaking of which, Carlos, where, where are you from originally? Where's your family background? Um, I was born in Washington, D.C., uh, but my parents, uh, my mom's from Guatemala, my dad was from Cuba. They met in Washington, D.C. and made me. And uh, <laughs> I was like the, the, the third kid they'd had. And when I was three, we, we moved to Miami. And then when I was six, we moved to Guatemala. Then my dad got his job in Central America. And, and so we moved to Guatemala, and then we moved to Costa Rica. When I was nine, we moved to Panama when I was 11, back to Costa Rica when I was 13. And then when I, I, when I was 14, we moved to Miami because he got mm. another job. Wow. And um, that was sort of it. You know, we kind of, we, we just came back here. And then when I went to, to, to college, I went to University of Southern California. So I moved to Los Angeles and I moved back here to teach at the University of Miami. Oh, wow. Like in 2010. So I've been here like nine years. Wow. Since LA. So, wow. Yeah. yeah. It's been a while. Oh, welcome back. I'm glad to be back. It's hitting me now. I've been here so long now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that whole time you've been teaching at the university. Yeah, University of Miami, where I run the um, at the Frost School of Music, where I run the media writing and production program, mm. which is basically film scoring, video game scoring, and production, and which is in itself a whole new world uh, from what me any listener may be that, that is interested in making music may think of what a producer is, um, what a producer is today versus what a producer that people of my generation think of is sort of transformed quite a bit. A lot of people are making things. In in their laptop and they're producing they're, they're just making them in their laptop before there was a financial um uh, block you know there was a there was a way that you could not get you had no access because mm. you needed so much money to be able to um pay for a studio time right studio time came in the hours it was like right. yeah. incredible it was impossible right you know uh you you had to pay hundreds of dollars to be in the studio to get your dream to happen right and so that it was financially unaffordable now everything is up for grabs and yeah. people are making things and incredible things if you look up on, on YouTube just you know there's producers that are doing great work like Andrew Wong and um, that you just look them up and you can't believe what they're making so yeah it's a long answer but but yeah it's, it's true we want the long answers yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's something we touch up a lot is how technology the evolution of technology and the entertainment industry yeah. have gotten to a point where now we can hear so many more creative voices that have access to tools that are relatively inexpensive mm -hmm. but can still produce high quality content. Yeah, and I, I've kind of of the mind that a lot of people feel like, well, the quality's gone down. I don't think so. I think I think the best stuff always rises up no matter where you're making it. Mm -hmm. You know? It's just giving a lot more people opportunity to make. 
Right. But right. but but it used to be sort of a select lucky few, and um, and I think the fact that other people are able to to get um, this kind of thing going is really changing the landscape and and the way in which we have to teach. Mm. We are we are teaching a new generation, and what I love about being uh, involved in that aspect is that it keeps me current. I get to feel as I'm getting older, I'm I'm looking at what the next generation is doing, paying attention, learning, and and taking from that and growing. Hopefully, right. yeah. What I always say is, you know, paint has been around forever. <laughs> Yeah. Just because paint has been around doesn't mean everyone's going to be a Picasso. Is right. That's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. That's a good analogy, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's sort of the short of that yeah. or long. I don't yeah, know. because I, I think it's always it does come down to the quality, the artistry, the ability to tell a story, which is a unique talent, I think, mm-hmm. and how that takes many forms. In your case, storytelling through music. Yeah. So what were your sort of first inspirations that you knew you wanted to be somehow involved in the music industry? You know, it's weird because I, I'm thinking now of like when I was doing before I got got into I got my quote unquote break or whatever was in 2013 when I did um a movie uh called The Walk Among the Tombstones but before that it was like um I was a classical composer and I was doing that whole thing I was that was the path I'd, I'd forged I'd made a decision that I was going to be cla- music, writing music for orchestra and chamber music and I was doing things I was getting performances and getting some commissions I was very blessed in that way but I remember for a while I was tripping on this you know because you're trying to how am I how am I going to brand myself and stuff you know like how am I going to sell this thing right. and um, I remember I used to call myself a musical essayist like I would and and, the, and what I meant was like I would like go and, and learn about because I used always I always felt like writing is research like no even now on projects it's like if you're going to write about a certain thing you have to understand the genre you want to be um, you want to honor the music that you're kind of paying attention to or the style that you're you're following or, or writing and I used to do a lot of research, so Afro-Cuban music, I would write some chamber music that was like, you know, out there a little bit, but I always try to honor that. But I did all kinds of research, I heard all kinds of music, right, that would inspire me to do these shorter pieces. So they're like essays on something. So storytelling was always part of, even when I was not doing film music, you know, it was the idea of telling a story that you feel like you're going to go through a journey and you're going to hear a beginning, a middle of an end. There's going to be an arc, maybe not in three acts, let's say, but there would be three movements, right? Mm-hmm. So it's three acts in a way. Or So the question that you'd ask is what got me into it or what I thought. I never thought I was going to be getting into, I never, and I've said this plenty, but I never thought that I would ever do film music or I thought people that did that were born in another planet. You know? <laughs> and that they were, they because I was growing up in Costa Rica when I, in Guatemala and Panama when I saw Close Encounters of the Thirst, first, Third Kind, sorry. <laughs> My first uh, a Star Wars movie was in Central America. When I saw E.T., when I saw all of these things... Mm. They were the movies that really formed my childhood or informed my love for film music, you know? Right. And I was like, well, I'm in a, another country, literally. And whoever does that must be very special and from another place. So I never believed it would ever happen to me. So uh, I was inspired by it. And I was always a fan of music. Even, even when I was teaching, as I started getting into teaching, I taught a class on film music mm. because I loved it so much, you mm. know? So I tell... I, I, I was teaching at the Pasadena Conservatory in Los Angeles and I created a course for film music and we had all kinds of students and as a matter of fact one of the students that we had and I got to meet which is so surreal was a guy by the name of Van Dyke Parks I don't know if you know who he is but he's a string arranger 
Fisher and he's been involved with, you know, from um, from the Beach Boys all the way through. Like he's been um, a very, very important character in the in the background of popular music and very respected. And he came to the to the class and, and it was just it's just been a, a real wow. weird trip. That's you know, great. Th- this is this is great because on our last podcast, mm-hmm. in our introduction to you, yeah. I talked about how character yeah. is so important in right. films and mm-hmm. so important in television and content creation mm-hmm. and that music is a character itself. Right. You know, it's such an intrinsic part of the story. Yeah. You know, so what you're saying makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. in terms of thinking of it in, as a storytelling yeah. and I think component. Talking mm-hmm. about that age, I guess, where, where we kind of grew up, where I first kind of felt that presence was probably, you know, the music of John Williams, you know, yeah. when that you know those orchestra hits and it's you know how could you have star wars without that opening theme yeah no of course and he, he is one of the greats and and he is one of the people that i i think i think I'm, i've been thinking about this for a lot uh, for the last few months specifically because 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 i think there's a sort of adherence to what we think of the Williams approach, it's it's the idea of motivic writing where you write a motif for a, a character. Mm. So every time the character appears, there's that melody. Right. And I certainly adhered, adhered to that in Godless, right? And, right. And, and which, which was like, you know, the bad guy, every time Jeff Daniels' character would appear, there's dun, 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 da, 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 right? And then there's this bad guy's theme, and then the hero had a theme, Roy Good. And, and that is a very classical kind of way to approach storytelling, but it's not the only kind of way to tell story. And and so what I've what I've been trying to deal with is like how is music in itself a character? And that's the other thing that John Williams also did, right? Because like you said, what is Star Wars without that theme? But what is Star Wars without just the sense and tone of that music? Right, mm-hmm. right. That operatic sort of experience you're going through, where you're like, oh my god, this is. You can make. You know, uh, uh, like, for example, a movie like Back to the Future, Mm. if you remember watching it, if you see it without any music or just watch it on mute, it's a small movie. It's shot small. Mm. It it feels small. It's in small rooms. It's small spaces. But the music makes it larger than life. And that is a character helping tell the story and and enhance the story in a way that's not... Hmm. necessarily good guys here bad guys here right you know and it's it's fascinating to me when you start thinking about how music's role can play much more than uh, my argument has always been that music is is you know five ten percent of the part of the gig it's not as important as people think it is and i certainly have always looked at it that way like it's the job of music and storytelling is to transition us from one scene to another. If you notice most score in films and, and television, whatever, starts at the end of one scene and ends at the beginning of the other scene, usually between dialogue. Right. And that helps us visually understand that we're going from one place or time to another place in time. And right. that is our job is, a, is our in that storytelling on a basic level as a mm. composer is a transitionalist. Does right. that word even mean something? I don't know. It sounds cool. <laughs> but we help transition. Our job is usually most of the cues are going to be that you submit at the end of the day. You're like, oh, you realize this is this cue starts when they finish dialogue right. and it ends right as the next scene and it goes back to its stage. Right. Right. Like we have to change the set. So music will come in and it'll help us. And th- these weird things have kind of carried through storytelling right. into into the visual experience. 
And and so we have to we're playing kind of many layers. It's not just, you know, the, you know, because I've assigned a motif to somebody, now I'm done. It's sort of like that's step one right. and transitioning is another step one. Right. And then you have to go down these different paths at the same time right. as a composer. And if you're doing your job, you know, yes. so anyway. So you think it's layers. It's, it's many layered. And it's many layered and, and like I said, it's sort of like I you know, I got passed up for a gig I was doing, I was I was trying out for, and the reason they said is that they wanted a more ambient score, which is less melodic, because I tend to go for melody, because I, I love it, and it's part of who I am. There's mm. no, it's hard for me to not find a melodic idea and try to bring out something, because it helps me build, you know, like if I have a, a little bit of a, of a motif or something, I can just play with it and do different iterations of it, and it helps me get uh, content. You know that I can apply and see if it gets rejected for, or approved or you know for, by the director. Right. But but some people do very very well at ambient sort of just tone and that in itself is a skill set and it's something I could develop. You know. But well, I, I think now now the eighties the eighties mm-hmm. is having such a resurgence mm-hmm. and that's also changed the dynamic in terms of scoring and the music and you know the feel of things. Yeah. So yeah, maybe that ambient kind of feel. Yeah, that, you know, the eighties, you it's, know, was, yeah. was more popular. Is having a resurgence. Agreed. I know. I I agree a hundred percent. I think I think the idea of synthesizers and Stranger Things being a big right. Hit. I was thinking of that. And, and and but there's more. There's like all these sort of like the next Wonder Woman. I think is happening in the eighties yeah, or correct. set in the eighties. And yeah. there's there's so many more uh, stories that are being told because the people with the money to invest grew up in the eighties. Ah, uh, right. Of course. <laughs> and so we as an audience <laughs> are going to be subjected to it. So people my age with all that money are are investing and going I'm, I love a story set in the 80s because right. it's my childhood right so that is why Stranger Things kind of does well because it kind of go- brings us back to the Goonies it brings us back to E.T. it brings us right. back to that sort of mysterious thing and even with the actors from the times if you notice in Stranger Things you had Matthew Modine you had uh, Winona Ryder Winona Ryder you have uh, Sean what's his name Sean Astin Sean Astin yeah. who is like uh, so you have all these characters that are being brought back because the kid in us which is all we are entertaining at the end of the day right. yeah. is 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 happy to see them they're like oh I remember from the Goonies yeah. or Rudy or you know Lord of the Rings for the big fans you know um, right no and it makes sense because especially in the I, the word I keep thinking of is adventure and I think the music played a lot in that the sort of last age of innocence where we didn't have the cell phones and the technologies and our parents you know like the Goonies would just let us go Damn, on man. bikes and we would just yeah. be running around and getting dirty and as long as you were home before it got by, by dinner yeah <laughs> by dinner you get <laughs> you the know? call from mom from the balcony right, right. that was the thing was the like, dinner bell dinner, dinner. <laughs> you're like you're like and you're playing with a firecracker it could blow your hand yeah. off I remember yeah. we, in Guatemala in the 80s. certainly we were playing with these little diamond ones or triangle ones and yeah. we had all kinds of stuff and we just and it was a different time and now I don't know I, I, I'm always afraid of saying it was different or better I think our kids are going to be the same the same thing when they're our age they're right, like yeah. my parents let me do everything and I'm like I don't think I'm letting you do everything <laughs> right but our, I feel certainly that my parents did let me do a lot yeah and they would just let us go around the neighborhood you know riding bike I was in and back then it was like chips was a big deal and we were always a little bit behind in Central America from American <laughs> experiences right. so if a record came out here in the United States right 
um, it would be like six months before it came out in Central America. Right. So distribution was back then a physical process, not a streamable process. That's true. And it wasn't right. instant all over the world. It was It was like, designed. it was timed out and, right. and released over time. So movies would be released and the summer film from the United States would not come out until December in Central America. So if you took a trip to Miami and you came back, you're like, I saw E.T. They're like, dude, how'd you see that? <laughs> you're ahead of the game. But all in Spanish, you know? Right. Right. You know, and, right. and 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 so that sort of idea of delayed um, experiences was was one of those things I became aware of once I moved here. I was like, wow, man, we were like really. Point is that Chips was a TV show that was big, right. and I saw it in Spanish. I don't know if you guys remember it at all. I do remember. There was like, but it was uh, Larry Wilcox and Eric Estrada. Anyways, and I was I was one of them, and I would be one of the co- bike cops, you know, riding around the neighborhood in Costa Rica up and down hills, and it was like, wow, you yeah, know, I don't know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were just talking about Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. Now, audience can't see this because this is listening. But if you turn around, you're going to see Stranger Things right there on the wall. Oh, yeah. And then if you look to your other side, you're going to see Godless. Hey, right above. Look at that. We did not do that because you're coming. That has been there. We'll show you a picture. Wow. (laughs) Well, they got a lot of nominations. Now, uh, that's right. 12 Emmy nominations. Oh, my God. won three. You want to know something really cool? I got to meet the Stranger Things actors. Oh, did the you? Stranger Everybody character. wanted to meet them. Uh, well, it was, by, it was one of those things. That they, mm. And then um, I have a picture. I think I'll show you. Yeah, we got to see the after, picture. But, uh, but it was just my wife and myself were at this thing, and the kids were there. And, and because our kids, you know, they just know of the actors. They haven't even seen the show because they're right. too young um, to yeah, see it. Young. Kind it's of thing. Right, right, yeah. right. But uh, but they knew of the actors, so he said, "Can we take a picture? It'd be great, man." And yeah. we got photoshop, photo photoshopped, photo bombed by Eleven. You know what I oh, mean? Oh, really? Kind of jumped in across <laughs> as we were no taking kidding. pictures of some of the other actors. But that was like a surreal. That was a surreal kind of. Yeah, experience. I have one of those stories yeah. with my daughter mm-hmm. when uh, we were doing the Beach Chronicles, and then I got the. Um, the voiceover from Daryl Hannah. You know, I was like oh, totally geeked yeah. out. Like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. And my, I told my daughter and she's like, eh. So yeah. then I, I did a panel at one of the festivals we're in mm-hmm. and it was around the time of Big, Big Hero 6. Uh-huh. So, oh yeah, Big Hero. Yeah, 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 so the guy who voiced the Big Hero 6 guy was on the panel with me mm-hmm. and, and I got a poster cared. signed by him <laughs> and she's like, oh my God, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. so great. She almost cried, yeah, you know. Of course. Right. Of course. So it's, it's all relevant. It is. It's, it, that's, the, that's the other thing, man. It's like, I'm get, I've been sort of on this existential trip, but you know there are cycles of what's important. You know of who is important, right? And who is relevant right now uh, may be out. And a lot of actors who have had careers like Sean Astin, for example, there was a time where he probably couldn't get arrested, right. even for went on a writer. Right. <laughs> Not to no pun, in, you know what I mean? But she she was out for a while, and she's had. I really respect that. I think I think um, the grit of some of these people that come in and out of of popularity is 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 admirable because right. because it, or admirable or I'm not saying right, right. but I I do find that sort of persistence thing is is surreal and I think if you have an objective to be as objective about the fact that right now no one cares about what you're doing and and somehow realize that that is not who def- what defines you mm. is sort of like the most um, the healthiest thing to kind of that's helped me get through things even outside of film music or just composition or just in life you know it's sort of like right now what defines me is family what defines me is the, the passion I have for music mm. for, for teaching for and, and at some point those things do kind of connect with some other people that may be interested in having me do work for them or right. with them and right, right. but but it, it has been weird that I've noticed that 
all the, I would go to my parents' house and watch them watching a show in black and white, and they're like, oh, that's this person, that's this person. I'm like, who are they? Right. And the reality is all the people that are matter to us now, whether they be you know producers, directors, or actors, most of them won't matter. Right. In a while. And right. so so the importance and power we give to those people is something that really is a subjective thing. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, yeah. Th- and th- this is actually apropos because mm. when we started the podcast, mm. we talked a lot about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, great. Yeah. And Tarantino was famous for this. Yeah. He'll use an actor that is relevant right now but he'll go back and use an actor that maybe well, again, haven't heard Travolta's so much Jackie Brown remember the yeah. main guy from De- Jackie Brown Jackie De- DeForest Kelly yeah. Yeah. yeah but even if you go back to you know Pulp Fiction yeah. John Travolta's career at that time oh was kind of tenuous oh yeah I mean he just about that. everybody yeah. in that film you yeah. know their career was in, and he really pulled that together mm-hmm. in a way where it just you know really pushed all of their careers Forward, yeah, right. and faster, yeah, yeah. So, Quentin Tarantino, yeah. And so, um, on our first episode, we had uh, Adrian Wooten, who is the film commissioner for London and also for the UK. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, exactly yeah, the British film commissioner, very yeah. cool, British very film cool commissioner, guy, yeah. and it very connected with Tarantino, mm. you know, championing his career very early on. Wow. And so there's been this connective thread amongst all the people that we've interviewed and okay. amongst all the conversations. Okay. Right. But I want to now mm-hmm. circle back to Godless because mm. I want to give enough time to talk about Godless. Yeah. It certainly is a marker for the times. And mm-hmm. in terms of content and the transition of content, the story that you told me about Godless and how mm-hmm. it came about really makes sense for this time because yeah. you told me that Godless initially may have been a feature film. It was a feature film. It was supposed to be a feature film. And even like about, I would say, um, I I got a, I saw the, the fact that he had, Scott I knew from the story with the director for The Godless, I was his guitar teacher. Hmm. And that's how this break happened. The fact that I'm even talking to you guys right now happened because I was teaching guitar to someone and that someone happened to be a writer a big writer for Hollywood and who went into directing and I was his teacher when he started directing his first film and he got James Newton Howard to score his first movie and it was called The Lookout it's a really good story but when I would go to his house I was mentoring with Randy Newman at the time Hmm. and I was going to USC doing the classical stuff so all these sort of elements were kind of slowly combining together into the sort of career opportunities right that came about but but what really happened was that I remember one day I just went to guitar lesson and, and, and he's like, hey, Carlos, I'm going to read a scene I just wrote for this thing. I go, what? And he goes, oh, it's just, it's just an original story I'm doing, you know, but check it out. And he read me this speech that Jeff Daniels gives, um, the character uh, gives to, um, gives by the fireside. And he's a cruel man doing really cruel things. And he's just talking about his story, how it happened. And he read it to me and I was like, wow, man, that's really dark, really crazy. That's bananas, you know? And uh, he ended up, uh, we after he read it to me, I was like, great, okay, let's take the guitar out and let's just play some, some C chords and, you know what I mean? Like it was just guitar, it turned into guitar lesson. Wow. And I knew it was godless and then I find out later after having worked with him that first time and we moved on to the second, he go he sent me the original was a script. He goes, I'm expanding this because Netflix now wants to make this a longer story. And the thing is, like, he couldn't get himself a, a, a Western could not be made. 
um, back then. No one wanted to make Westerns. And again, as we were talking about how things come into popularity or out of popularity, you know, Westerns, there was a time when no one wanted to make them. Yet there was a time before that in our youth where Westerns were coming out. Really good movies, Silverado, Tombstones, uh, Dances with Wolves, and all these other movies. There was a time for Westerns that faded. So he wrote a Western in a time when no one cared about him. So once he came into Netflix and the conversation started when Netflix wanted to do content as they were really building their content up and their level of television had kind of gone up with the stuff they'd done with House of Cards and right. and other stories they were telling was like uh, they're like we want to do a Western but we want to we want to make it a big one and he was like okay let's do it so wow you know that's how that came about yeah but this is another interesting thing in this evolution of the industry oh, yeah right. and so we've talked a lot about this you know mm-hmm. the transition of what is now content because mm-hmm. I don't know if in the general public they still consider TV TV no. but in terms of our in terms of the industry yeah. no one says TV anymore because mm-hmm. are you watching it on your TV are you watching it on your cell phone your laptop so this content and so this episodic series which is godless that started off as a feature film mm-hmm. and then became an episodic is emblematic of the transformation of the industry as a whole. Oh, yeah. Because you have now people that formerly would only work in film. And then you have people who formerly would, you know, be exclusive to TV going back and forth seamlessly. Oh, yeah. And more easily. All so, the writers have gone to television because all the, they get to tell their story without restriction of length. Mm-hmm. A lot of the writers, the really the good ones, a, a lot of people have gotten like think of uh, even, um, you know, it started. I mean, I think people like Soderbergh started doing he did the Nick. And I think and it was a long time ago. It was a few years ago. He's um, always ahead of the curve. He's though. always been. He did the mosaic mosaic, which is a sort of episodic uh, choose your own story, kind of like Black Mirror Bandersnatch that came out on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, Soderbergh had already tried it. He's been certainly ex- experimenting with those things. And a lot of writers have been mostly going to miniseries and writing for, you know, episodic television in, in, in these places. Because, first of all, Netflix is sort of figuring itself out. Netflix is it, not anymore. I think they've kind of figured well, it out. Well, they've changed the game. But, yeah. they, but during the time in which they were figuring themselves out, they were really supporting the storyteller. It's kind of like Apple Music right now, or Apple TV is doing it now. Apple TV now is really getting to the point where they're taking a big risk and they're going to start releasing content. And they're they're probably scared because they don't, they're, you know, they're kind of going in on it. But if you think about the people they got to tell the stories, and right. Steven Spielberg and all these big actors, uh, because um, when a company decides it's business, it's show business at the end of the day, it's a business. We have to make our money back. Mm. Marvel has done fantastically well for Disney, right? So like now they've gotten the hold of them and you they, they, they got it down. Any Marvel movie will be of a quality mm. of a level. Right. Right? right. So the same thing is happening. I've gone all over the place here. No, no, yeah. no, 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 this is great. But, but it's sort of true. I'm looking at how at how these things are happening, a lot of the writing, writers are going to places where they, they're like, oh, I can actually do this and for this long, as opposed to I'm cut. This is a, a bit of a... Television ha- has always been considered 
a lesser uh, quality than than um, films. Than films. films. Yeah. But but that started changing. I I'd even go back to The Sopranos. When HBO oh, released right. The Sopranos, then, yeah, that was Karen Hall's favorite show. Yeah, and it, when when The Sopranos came out, that was like a big what? What what is happening? HBO programming. There's a television show called Rome that I saw on HBO years ago, and I was like, "This is amazing," you know. Yeah. Yeah. And the quality, um, production quality, and the level of artistry that was being crafted and made was was starting to elevate. And then Netflix has helped even further the game, and all these other play Amazon Originals, Hulu, whatever you name them, they're making really quality television so now it's becoming media it's just media it's just right. entertainment I say storytelling story you know, is a story one minute five yep. minutes yeah. 30 minutes exactly. 12, 12 hours how can you engage that kid in us to kind of care about the next thing whether it's very adult or not something mm-hmm. in us always has when something's great and something's really good you kind of you can just read the audience and just read the sense of how if I play a song for you that I wrote um, it, you'll be like meh you know, or I can ch- tell by how quickly people start checking their phones out. You know what I mean? If I'll play something, I'll be like, hey, what's up? They're like, yeah, I'm like, I love, let me check it out. Man, I can't wait to hear it. You did something great. Let me hear it. And then I start playing it. And if they're checking their phone in 10 seconds, I know I don't have them. Right. I know it's not. So for me, the most important thing is sort of like, how do you, how do you, and I think the writers certainly do that. They're page turners. They, they fight. And I listen to a lot of podcasts on on writing, you know, mm. and and there's, there's one called Script Notes by Craig Mazin and John August, and oh, wow. and it's just fantastic. And and you hear them, and they inter- interview great writer, Tony Gilroy, one of the great writers of Hollywood. He's worked on everything, um, so uh, and and he's just one of the great great storytellers on paper. And they always talk about making sure that you're going to have to turn to the next page. You know, yeah. their job is to make you keep. You know, and I think our job in the entertainment industry or in the show business is to make sure that we're not just doing it for ourselves. It's part. You always have to find that original space of how you relate to the story you're involved in. Right. But I think I think the main important thing is that you realize you want an audience to react to this. I don't want to write something that'll work out my inner problems. I think I want to write something that if the story is demanding your attention, that I help you keep that attention. That's my job as a composer. Right. You know, it, I can write music on commission classical music that is just satisfying something I want to just work out Mm. but my problem my challenge in the story or the job is always to help tell that story in a way that that engages you that you if I send a demo I want them to love it I don't want them to say it's okay I don't want them to say like you know yeah I just feel like there's like an age-old question in the music industry. What, what is a hit song? And the answer is usually we know it when we hear it. Yeah, yeah it's so hard, yeah. really. You there know, is in, no, in, in that. Yeah. There's no formula, no, essentially. No, I don't right. think so. Right. Yeah, but this is apropos because our last podcast, the one we just posted today, okay. is with Karen Hall, the legendary uh, screenwriter, screenwriter and TV television writer. writer. Right. Wow. She wrote the last episode of MASH. <laughs> Is an example, you know, the most watched television episode in history. Yeah. yeah that's not going to change because True. audiences are too, you know, segregated at this point. Yeah. But what I wanted to get to also is, you know, this difference between feature film. And this is really a great transition because, mm-hmm. you know, Godless feature film composing and composing for it really is the smaller screen because whether it's a TV or whether it's a laptop or a, a mobile phone, which is the most watched screen yeah. uh, between uh, scoring for features and scoring for the smaller screen. Mm. When you first started with Godless as a feature, 
and then it became for the smaller platform. Did you think differently in terms of how you were going to lay out that score? No, man, because... Oh, oh, okay. Layout, yes. In the process of making no, you're kind of rea- because the screen I'm using is it was uh, for a while I was working off the laptop because I just like to work on a laptop because I could take it anywhere, and so the screen was literally one quarter of the screen real estate of my laptop. Whether it's a feature film on that quarter of the real estate or it's a mini series or it's a, it sort of doesn't matter. You're writing to that, but and, the feel of it. But the, but the but the, the layout the, it does become an issue. I I'm looking right now. I'm, I'm doing. I'm working on something else that's that's a, another long form, and I'm not in it yet. I'm just sort of prepping and starting to do ideas, and I honestly don't even know how. I don't know how I'm. I don't know how it's going to happen. Other than I'm going to try to get, you know, some some of the characters down, understanding some of the tone. Again, I'm right now trying to find out what doesn't work, and I did that for Godless. Certainly, it was like I was sending things to the director, and he was like, "I don't think this works." You have to have that mental approach of. I don't, you know, th- no matter what, this is, it's truly not about me. It's just that what I'm doing isn't working. Mm. I, I am not defined by that. You're defined by your, by, by the other things that you care about. Right. Because, and, and, and the work you do, mm. you know, it's, it's, and I think that happens with songwriters when they're coming up, you know, and I write a song and they didn't like my song. They don't like me. No, they, they, they don't care about you. That's, <laughs> right, that's right. right. That's what you have to know. Yeah. They just don't like your song. But if you want to take it that personal, you know, that's your problem. You have to find a way to get that grit to get up again and write another one. Well, it's so commoditized right. now too. Yeah. And I look at, and this is of course not what it is film because it's all, you know, together, especially now, but you look at a song like old town road. You know, which is, you know, the most streamed song song in history. It's bigger than the song of the summer. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this is just a song that the guy found a beat on the Internet. And then he, you know, put laid down his lyrics. And then it came up through a new platform, TikTok. Yeah. You know, he marketed it in the new way with memes and, you know, all. And then it just took off and it became a viral hit and it and, happened to be a good song and it happened to right. be a good song that corporate and people really liked the it riff the hook everything certainly is a great song because it was organic it yeah. wasn't like you know mechanized and mm-hmm. you didn't have all that push behind it yeah uh, ultimately you did get that push behind it but yeah. it was already a hit when they the start when they're like push. we can grab this that's doing and that's the thing um i, I think um it is a different it's a changed industry altogether and and i think certain things work and certain things don't like just to talk about the song stuff um, because I've of the I've been dealing with that as a when I was running the popular music program at, at the Frost School um, we'd have guests and we had Imogen Heap come by and mm. talk and she was talking and this is like in April and, and I was interviewing her and she was like hey so she wasn't saying she didn't say hey <laughs> she never said hey hey so it was in the middle of interview right and she was talking about like you know i'm not interested in putting a million dollars behind a song just to sell it you know and she's interested in other things and she's talking about monetization through bitcoin there's like this whole other stuff you know mm-hmm. um but but i find that stuff to be fantastically weird that what it is is that in order for you to market something, you have to have that kind of money. You have to have that kind of money. Yeah. And 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 it costs a million dollars to get songs to people's ears. Right. And people, so yeah. and it's always in a film costs five million dollars to make, fifteen twenty million dollars to market it. Right. 
to get people in seats. So marketing and awareness is not just, you know, I hope my fans like it, my 500 followers. It, it, it's like there's got to be an animal behind it right. and an investment in it for it to become aware. And that's just always been part of the industry. And how it's done is changed, but it is not changed. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. payola and radio from right. the 50s is, mm. was, you know, it's always been part of it. Oh, you know? right. Yeah. Right. But I think about now the power of the people. Mm. I think that there has been a shift in terms of people having more of a voice oh, yeah. in terms of social know, media wise. Oh, my gosh. Dude, they've destroyed. You know, they go up. Ryan Johnson, who I follow on Twitter, um, can't put a post about anything without one comment being you killed the last Jedi. Right. He can talk about anything. <laughs> right. I took my mom to eat lunch on Mother's Day. You really suck. Because <laughs> the last Jedi sucks. Right. Like, why right. why are you doing this to people? And that voice, which we as human beings, I've all even when I was like doing the rock band stuff and before this this area of things I you 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 appreciate praise and we're creatures that like you know that ego to be you know but we take home the one comment that's negative all of our all the positives are great but one person who doesn't even know music says oh I think your band sucks you you're like you, <laughs> you know like what happened and why did I choose music I should have been an accountant you know you right. like you go there with one comment and imagine the kind of grit it's having to create in people like Ryan Johnson and who are extreme I mean dude he's got the thirteenth most um, monetized film of all time, like the most lucrative. It's right. like number thirteen now. It's the end end game, right? It beat Avatar recently. Then came Avatar now and Titanic and Last Jedi is the thirteenth biggest grosses, grossing movie of all time. Right. Yeah. So you know you can always rest on the money you're making, but I think the human element is sort of like the thing you have to work on because the power of social media, the power of one voice being able to ruin your day is really increased because now the reach of you is yeah. to the world. The it's sensitivity global. level. And, the, yeah. and yeah. so people can, someone come from any, from another country that speaks another language can translate and say, say you suck. <laughs> right. <laughs> and whatever language. Yeah. Whatever, whatever reach that you Oh, get. let me check that out in Google Translate. Yeah. What is that? Oh, you suck. Yeah, yeah. That's literally the truth. And, and so I think it's a different kind of it's a different landscape in that aspect for sure. Right. Well, Hollywood is that kind of industry. That's, it's a hot and cold industry. There's no warm. There is no, no not, warm. You're right. It's hot <laughs> and cold. It's, it's empathy less. Yeah. You know, there is no such thing of, as, as just like, hey, if it doesn't work, it does a business side of it. And that's, that's why you kind of like... I think I have to have that sort of approach, that mental approach of like, I don't know. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so, um, yeah. So, yeah. So we're going to jump back into it. Uh, we were in Godless. Okay. As a matter of fact. All right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were also talking about the difference between scoring for features and scoring for, you know, s- smaller form. You know, TV, yeah, that's feature, right. Features and TV. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, you were talking about, you know, when you're looking at it on your laptop, you're mm-hmm. still you're looking at it in, in the smaller format mm-hmm. as you're looking at it physically. Yeah. But the feel of it, you know, are, are, are you scoring in a bigger way because you're thinking, oh, this is going to be in this is going to be in a theater. You know, are you are you just really oh, just feeling it? OK, are you just feeling I, I think it? you're scoring to the scene no matter what. So, like, there's a moment when there's dude, one of the early uh shots I got from Godless was one of the guys, the sheriff, Bill McNew is, is wrangling these horses and um, is riding on his horse through this open field 
and he's just going at he's wrangling in the um, the cattle the, this horses that Alice and her ranch got away from her and the way in which it's going is that he's just there's this beautiful shot like over like almost like an aerial shot and then this very small horse and Ryder come into the frame from the left frame from far away, very minuscule. On your phone, you'd barely catch it, right? If you're right. looking on your phone. But he rides in, and then it kind of zooms in on him. And then it kind of goes, and it goes a little bit closer, and then it shows him, like, wrangling the horses. Mm. And then it has this beautiful shot of him just riding. Once he gets with the horses, he starts going galloping pretty fast to get back, to bring the horses back to Alice's ranch. And he's like, I'm going to go. When he tells her, I'm going to go and chase down this Frank Griffin before he comes to town. He doesn't tell her that because he's in love with her. There's this whole other sub story. But that shot I knew had to be the for the fact that it was so long a shot was was one of the big gifts I got from the director because he allowed that moment to be trusting that the music would help that carry moment, it right? carry. Yeah. Because if you don't have music on that, it's just a shot of a guy on a horse. For a while, <laughs> right? And, and nobody, people are like, "I'm gonna check my own phone and I'll play my video game while I'm watching the story," which happens a lot now, right? right. You're like, you're watching a show while you're watching your phone. Right? It's a bad habit. I it's know. no, it's the new, it's, <laughs> but it's a thing. Yeah. It's, no, it's, but it's my younger brother, yeah, you know, who's much younger than me. My dad had him when he was fifty. Mm-hmm. Him and I have totally different viewing experiences. Yep. And when he came and he worked for my company for a couple of years, when we would watch something. He would have out his laptop, yep. and he's watching, and he's on his laptop doing something, yep. and then he'll pull out his phone. Yeah, I'm like, dude, you gotta, how are you really how engaging you? in I, this thing? I agree, a hundred percent. And he's like, oh no, but I'm doing this for the for my company, you yeah. know. I'm doing this post on your, right. you know, for the yeah. for, for this, and then you know, I'm looking no. at my phone for this, and you know, it's, it's a different experience. Nah, it's it's sort of like what is happening now, and it's normal. I'm doing it. Like I was like before, like how dare ye, you know? And but now I'm like doing it. You know, and and I think because it's sort of like how our minds, our brains are evolving, and I would appreciate the focus more. You know, right. like I like I would do it, but I just find that to be the case. Anyway, so so I, I I do know that that I think the director allows you a moment to write. You take that advantage of that moment, and then because I was getting a chance to write this music earlier, right? I would I would actually really 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 appreciate you know the fact that I could because it would help save a scene that would otherwise be edited down. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The scene, if I didn't put music on that earlier on, the scene would have been much shorter. Right. It would have been a picture of a of a it would have been a picture of a of a horse and then wrangling and then he's pulling into Alice's ranch with the horses as opposed to you know, this long narrative you get to tell. Yeah, just feeling this epic kind of moment of him just Yeah, just getting on his there. way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right, right. For right. sure. Yeah, so I also want to talk about this, you know, evolution mm-hmm. of really pushing the elements of the story. Mm-hmm. Because for me, Godless, is, it was one of my favorite limited series, Thank you know, you, before I even reached out to you and before mm-hmm. we connected. Yeah. yeah. Um, the engagement that that limited series gives, it really feels cinematic. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah, yeah, it does. It certainly was shot with it, and to connect Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, the sound guy for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood worked on that as well. It's oh, wow. the same sound designer. Oh, Wiley wow. Statement, and and so it, I don't think Wiley operates on anything less than artistry. He he is an artisan. You know, he's an artist or whatever you want to call it, but he's certainly an artisan. He makes things, and the way in which he conceives a story and how to tell it through sound. Mm. is brilliant 
to quote, uh, uh, there's a moment if you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Of course. Okay, yeah, I've seen it. Okay, do you remember that moment when Brad Pitt, the character, is walking in the ranch of the Charles Manson ranch and mm-hmm. he's walking to Bruce Dern's character? Yeah. How creepy that feels? Yes. There's no score. There's right. no soundtrack there. It's just sound. Right. And he crafted that because Tarantino had told him uh, he's like I, I called him because I, that was the one green card I allow myself I'm a fan of these people of everybody I work with it's not like I'm like yeah you know it's hanging out with you know <laughs> right. I'm always like if I'm hanging out I'm going like I'm hanging out with you know what I mean right. I'm freaking out you know I, always because I respect the work so much and huh. so I I, I I saw the movie and I was like I, I called him and I was like man I, I had a call how'd you make it feel so creepy how, how did that happen because this scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is kind of it's long. It's a long walk. And it feels freaky, man. And and, and I, is there a score? And and I asked him, is there music? He goes, well, we kind of really crafted something because Tarantino didn't want... He goes, there's no piece of music that will work for this scene. Hmm. You need to make me make this work with sound. Wow. And they did. And they have all these different filtered sounds. There's a combination of wind. There's lion roars. There's all kinds of stuff that you don't even know or pay attention to but it's part of that story that that helps you uh, creep out you know so yeah yeah all those elements really work together yeah but this is really interesting too Mm -hmm. can you speak on your relationship with your sound designer yeah you told me this relationship between you and him was really a dynamic the more stuff I've been doing the more I've realized that how lucky um, I've been and I think I think we've all been to kind of have the opportunity to work so early on 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 the sound side of the story so the music are i've been submitting cues to the director and and stuff and he's been actually having ideas of sound and we uh, for this this next thing i'm doing but let's just go back to godless the same thing it, it was a lot of conversations that didn't end up on screen things that we talked about that never made it to the story itself you know but you have these conversations and you get to a point when you realize you you realize what doesn't work you know but that we really kind of allowed ourselves even when it was really pressured and we were on deadline is like okay who's going to take front seat here is it sound or music even if there's music is sound going to play a role with it or is sound going to be around are we ducking sound because i want to know what to focus on as a sound designer and I want to know what to focus on as a composer if you can help me with sound in some of the chase sequences if there's a train sequence what's the speed of the train give me the tempo and the speed of the train would help me with the tempo of the uh, of the cue mm. you know what I mean it gives me a sense of okay you know the music is born and, and it's and it's sort of like one thing feeds the other because I'm having access to the sound design that's an unusual thing Usually, right. I mean, truly, in most productions, from what I know, um, for the most part, it's sort of like you're doing your music and sound is going to find its way there. And I'm not going to be at the dub stage and they're going to choose what they want. They may move my cues elsewhere. And then without me knowing, this is just how this goes, you know, because there's the, the director actually has a final say or the showrunner or whatever, who's, whoever's in charge. Um, so this is a luxury, you know, but I do know that that things that are given time last longer, you know, and, and, and if you're given that sort of place to kind of really make a scene as strong as you believe you can, I mean, it'll last a long time. Mm. And, and and that's the hope. That's all that you can dream for, for having one scene out of a whole thing, one scene that you can stand behind the rest of your life. You're like, wow, man, I remember that moment was like, 
really special. There's a moment, and speaking of that collaboration with him, th- that I'm super proud of is because of the co- combination and collaboration we had was a scene for uh, where Roy Good goes back. Bill McNew's investigating at the beginning of episode three. It's the opening of episode three of Godless, and he's he's going back. And there's these flashbacks of what happened as he's discovering what happens. And there's a moment where Roy Good jumps over a horse and he shoots at a guy that, you know, as he's jumping over this horse and he shoots at a guy. And it's just beautifully shot. All of that sequence was really uh, born out of a collaboration. And we spent so many hours on the dub stage, which, again, a composer is usually never there. But I was sitting there with Wiley going, okay. There's this rhythm thing, right, that I had done from a helicopter sample. That is just weird. But I had just done it for this. I just grabbed the sub of it and just. Right. right. And so that was a propulsion for it. But he also has a gallop of the horse. Good, 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 good. Mm. Right. And it's all this sort of moment where you have this combination of sounds and we're like, this is too much information. You know, it's too much information. My score and your gallops, how do we deal with it? So we kind of really spent hours just trying to balance so it would feel just right. That, you don't get that. And, like, and, and if you watch it now, you may go, oh, it's too much or whatever. But it's a decision that was clearly thought through. It wasn't like, oh, man, whatever, you know? There's my music and there's your sound. It's like, let's marry them. So what we did was he worked with Eric Kane as well. Wiley's statement in Eric Kane was brilliant. He actually started timing some of his gallops to sort of play around my, you know, so it would be, you know, so the gallops would work, but we also have visual that we have to make sure we're matching. So are we moving my, or we, you know, all these things are like a real consideration to make that scene so much better. And I, and, and when I, you know, I, that's the kind of crap you're proud of because no one, I mean, right now I'm getting to talk about it, but this isn't what you go out and say, you know, you know, right. I just spent hours working on one scene and it's just really, no, it's, it's for me, it's almost like that's the stuff that why you show up and do it because yeah. you have, get to have those little moments and you really know, you know that you're not going to have as many. That as those, you know. So. This is great because this is a big reason, or one of the big reasons why we wanted to do this podcast in the first place. Right. Because right. we wanted to get into the minds of the people that are doing it, hmm. why they're doing it, how they're doing it. Hmm. What I'd like to get into is the Emmys. Okay. How was that? How did that feel? That's crazy. When you were announced, it's bananas. The actual event, banana, bittersweet too, because uh, the there was I worked with a PR lady. Uh, her, her name is Beth Krakauer, who's worked with film composers for years. And I remember watching this. Um, the SEL is a Society of Composers and Lyricists for, out of Los Angeles, and it's an organization I joined in fourteen or thirteen. And 2013, and, and I would watch these sort of like streaming, you know, informational things. And Bear McCreary, who's a composer, is well known and does a lot of television, and done some film now. And he was with her, and I was watching this very attentively. And I was like, wow, man, this is amazing. She knows so much about social media and how to kind of work this thing, and she does PR for all the composers. And then a year later, when this first movie I did uh, with the director was uh, Walk Among the Tombstones came out, I got a call That's from, with Liam Neeson, right? With Liam Neeson, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and um, 
I got a call from Varese Saraband, who is a record label I dreamed of being on. They were interested in putting out the soundtrack. So I'm already having that, that tear thing. I'm like, oh my God. And they're like, and we're going to have Beth Krakauer do the PR. I was like, Beth Krakauer. They're like, you know her? I go, of course I don't know her. I, I just, personally, I don't know her, but I know her, you know? Right. And I was like freaking out. Point is, and the reason why I'm setting this up is because um, she passed away a week before the Emmys oh, happened. No. And, right. and she worked, she had cancer. She was was posting about it publicly for a while, and then she kind of went into remission. So it was like this great thing. And as Godless was finishing, and we were starting to come out, it was starting. I was like, "Hey, how you doing?" She goes, "Oh, I just saw you did this, and I'm I'm so excited for you on that." I go, "Great." She didn't say, "Hey, I want to do anything." She was just saying, "I'm excited for you" because we kept in touch. And then uh, and then I said, "Hey, I'm I'm looking to do some PR for this show. Are you?" Are you can you do it because I knew she was sick she goes no of course I could do it I go wait but weren't you and so I called her I go, but weren't you sick as shit sorry <laughs> but we were friends so it'd I be your first you, boop yeah yeah but you could say that with you could say that in with podcast, you know yeah. no yeah. and in friends with friends you, could, you, you know and she's like she's like I was but I'm, I'm, I'm better now and, and you know I was like dude let's do this you know and so she started working it and then as in March of last year, uh, I went to an event with her in LA, like the you know an, an Emmy reception thing, and it wasn't because I'd been nominated. It was just to meet people because I just joined the Emmys because I'd done the show and I was so excited to be part of the Academy and all that stuff. For me, it's like a childhood thing. It's like oh my god, I never thought it. I never thought that this would get to an Emmy. I thought it would. My dad would love it, you know, because right. he loved westerns. And I was like, "This is great." So I went with her to Mar- in March to this first event because she goes, "You gotta go. You gotta go meet these people. If you're a member of the Emmys, you have to go meet them." Blah blah. blah. I went with her, and she's like, "I'm not. I haven't been feeling well. I don't know what's going on." Indeed, in you know April, it was like she it was back, you know, mm-hmm. and and she sends me an email, and she's like, "Hey, Carlos, just so you know." Um, uh, I, I'm kind of in this thing and I don't know if I'm going to be able 100% to help you anymore and it's up to you if you want to get someone else to PR you bro let's do it mm. and I go absolutely not I don't care if you're like don't do anything anymore. let's just do what we can let's see it to the end because I'm a loyalist you know and I and so the thing is that she ended up doing this she started doing the PR for it. I started, uh, I, you know, it, what PR means in that world is that you get to have an interview or you get a podcast interview or you get something of that sort. And because she's been in the industry so long, she's known some of the great people. And what happens is she got really sick towards the end. And But she's the one that called me when the nominations came out. Oh, she's, wow. she go, And she goes, Carlos, just to let you know, you got one... You got nope. You got two nominations. I was like, what? You know, wow. and it was another watershed moment. You know, and she goes, I'm so happy. And her goal, she's what she was saying. I was like, dude, let's do see it to the end. She goes, the only thing I care about is to get you see you nominated. You know, got twice nominated, and and that for me started to feel like because of Beth and for Beth. And so I dedicated when I won the, the when I did my speech and I go, Beth, wherever you are, this is for you. And because she had passed away a week earlier, mm. and she never got to see the end, but it was so powerfully emotional like after the win to to kind of go backstage and her team people that work with her you know we're all crying because she got me there i know that you yeah know? now we're gonna cry and i know it's but right. it's but it's but it's it's what this is about you know it's it's more like the people you get to meet that are good you know you're lucky in in an industry of of of, of people that are just more kind of worried about themselves and their survival in it you know or their relevance in it and just that's why I go back to the thing I was telling you guys earlier it's like 
you know, we're. I may be relevant for a while, but I'm. I'm not. I don't know about my shelf life, nor should I care about my shelf life. I should care about the projects I'm doing now and what I can do the best. Help tell that story. If it happens to coincide with people that are doing good work, let it be. You know, that's awesome. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, um, but it, it, so someone like that and a story to be the backstory to this. You know, which could be a conversation of like, you won't believe who I sat next to. You know, and right. and the people because I did get to meet some crazy people some of the composers I grew up loving you know Michael Dana was there there were uh, you know uh, Daniel Pemberton who is like one of my favorite composers now doing great work he did Spider-Man the, the animated Spider-Man Spider-Verse he's, Spider-Verse, Spider-verse he did, he's doing the Dark Crystal which is coming out at the end of the month they're doing the Dark Crystal how did I Dude, know that wait wait it's gonna blow your oh, mind amazing and he did and he scored that he's like one of the and he's him and Nicholas Bertel are my favorite composers and I got to meet them you know wow. and now Nicholas Bertel is nominated for an Emmy for the same category I am for best theme for Succession, which is an awesome thing. That's one of my favorite shows, dude. That theme oh. and that, that that opening, you always listen to it because it's so cool. Yeah, that that has been like one of the cool things of of the Emmy aspect has given me access. But my selfish aspect has been to teach. It's because I teach at the at the Frost School, so I'll have them like Skype in for my students. I'll be like, hey, so let's do an interview with blah blah blah. And <laughs> and how did how'd you get them? Well, it's because I got to meet them. But that's for me, that's the cool thing. Cause I get right. to bring that part to the students as opposed to sort of like, hey man. You right, know. right. You're not just sit bragging. No, just- <laughs> I, I think I really don't think much of that name dropping thing. I, right. I I think um I I personally have an anti statement to that. I I'd rather go around the, I've you know, I have been able to meet and hang out with some cool people, but I don't think it's it defines me either. Right. You know, I'd rather have the relationship than publicly have the relationship that right. maybe isn't real. The way I yeah. feel about it too, and then I'm gonna kinda you know fade into the distance, into the horizon, is um when Tommy Flanagan did a voiceover mm-hmm. for my project, The Beach Chronicles, he's yeah. one of my favorite actors. He's right. one of my top ten actors. Wow. I'm a fan. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so for me it becomes more a conversation like you said before. Yeah. Hey, I'm a fan of this person. It's yeah. not, you know, did mm-hmm. I get to hang out with this person? It's like, oh wow, I'm geeking out. Yeah. You yeah. know. So um this was great. I'm a fan, Carlos. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm geeking out. Yeah. And I, I think before we go, because one thing you know we like to end with is, is what advice would you give for a young musician or composer that wants to come up in the industry now? Um, you know, okay, so what advice I got when I asked someone for advice a long time ago in classical music, they're like, don't do it. It's too hard. And I was like, that was my fuel. So I've always been fueled by the challenge, you know, and and I've always felt like like I've always come in too late to everything, you know, like every I was the last one to come around for something, and and the opportunities that I've had have been because I've been late comer to it. So for for people that want to do it, I was listening to a podcast with Eddie Murphy being interviewed just today on the way here, and he was talking about you know that believe in yourself thing when you have that belief in yourself that that is the thing to admire, but I actually. I'm thinking more, it's not so much like I believe in myself because usually creatives are pretty, creative folks are pretty self-deprecating and, and filled with insecurity. So to say believe in yourself is the cheesiest and non-help, most non-helpful thing. But I think when I heard him talking contextually, what he was saying was believe in the thing you're doing. Mm. It's very different than just believing in yourself. So I believe in this thing I'm going to do and I'm going to do this thing for this director and it's going to be incredible. It has to be. It's going to be the best thing I've ever done. 
even if it ends up sucking or I don't get the job at the end. But at that moment, if you can find yourself that passion to do the thing and see a project through, see whatever you set yourself out to do. I'm going to do this demo and it's going to be the best demo I've ever done. I'm going to see that through. That is the belief in yourself that I think Eddie Murphy's talking about. It's not like I believe in myself and then I put it on a mirror next to, you know, in the bathroom. It's like, believe in yourself. Well, I believe in myself. No, I don't. I think I'm a failure. I think I I snuck in this industry or whatever. That's typical MO. So why don't you just believe in the thing you're doing, you know, that and see and get that project done and go out and meet people and get in it. And don't just meet other composers, meet directors, up and coming directors, meet up and coming, you know, editors and cinematographers, meet people that make things that are not the thing you make. You know, right. and 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 I think that's the only thing that I would call advice. You know, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of a quote: "Dreams without actions are just dreams." Yeah, but I think the fact that you're saying no, don't believe in yourself, but what you're doing is like turn the dream or the belief into an action. Yeah, it, and that's what I'm saying. It's like when we talk about the self and so it's just such a it it, it it's gonna you're gonna it's almost like going on a diet. You're gonna fail at some point, and right. very few times are gonna see it through. So like believing in yourself is so easy to say, and it's impossible to do. And you know, it's um, there are people who can't help but believe in themselves, right? right? But but there are people for the rest of us, which is most of the world, who get opportunities like this. Believe in the thing you're doing. Just put your faith in that. See that through and then you may get something out of it right. you know right well yeah thanks for for believing in what you do because you're great at it and thank you as well not only for being here this is amazing but also um you know i think anytime we have a teacher or professor we have to thank you in general for doing that because not everyone wants to give back and yeah. pass things on to that next generation and the fact that you're doing it you're doing it locally here in miami yeah. that's really a gift so thank you for that's being a, a teacher it's yeah. a privilege thank you so much guys and like i said i'm a fan yeah, same here thank you so much guys Carlos Rafael sí. Rivera. Carlos, nice with the Spanish vibe. I like that. Screen Heat Miami. Or, or for the English speaking folks, this is Charles Riverbanks. <laughs> oh, that's great. We got to leave it at that. We, we got right, to, yeah. See ya. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we're back. Yes. That was some musical heat. A lot. Wow. Carlos, what a journey, right? That was fire. Man, he was fire. Yes. Wow. Incredible. Imagine being Randy Newman's protege. And then you're going on and you're, you're giving guitar classes to the guy who ends up hiring you Scott to produce Frank. Scott Frank. I mean, that was his student just jamming in a garage somewhere in L.A. Saying, hey, by the way, I got a script. Want to check it out later? Yeah, cool, man. Not so sure it was <laughs> in the garage, but <laughs> wherever it was, you know, we can make up a story, right? If we did a right. a biofilm on Carlos Rivera, we would definitely put it in a garage. Uh, yeah, we'd have to. <laughs> Grungy garage. Old dusty you know. garage. Yeah, with ACDC t shirt, you know, just being like, Yeah, man, I got a script. You should check it out after. Yeah, cool, man. It's cool. But I mean, it's awesome. I mean, Scott Frank, he's written some of the biggest movies of all time. Right. Legend. <sighs> Amazing. And, and the, fa the fact that Carlos just kind of, I don't know if he happened into it, but I mean, what a lucky, I mean, the man has talent. You know, they always say that that luck is just talent meeting opportunity. Yeah. So that was definitely an occasion. So good for Carlos. He's doing great work. Yeah. But Godless, again, was one of my favorite limited series. Hmm. So just to, and it's all the elements, ultimately. I mean, you heard Carlos talk about the symbiotic relationship with, his, with the sound designer. Right. And how they really worked that out. Mm. beforehand there's a couple of really great videos 
if you look it up on the internet that Carlos did about the whole process and how he worked out that process. Right. He would get the script beforehand and actually score to the script. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, because and, and it's funny that that is something that is not usual for a music composer to work with a sound person. Like they're almost like isolated in two separate boxes and you're doing the sound design, you're doing the music and somehow it all comes together. But the fact that he was able to bring those and collaborate that closely, you know, I think that that is brilliant. I mean, that was such a great idea to do it that way. Emmy formula. Yeah, it's an Emmy winning. It really is, you know, because it's almost like a tag team. It's like, all right, you do this and then I'm going to do that. And I do that. It's like a band. Yeah. You know, it all blends in together. That's brilliant. And you could really feel it. You watch that show. Right. You know, when I talked a little bit about music being character. Right. Carlos talked about it, too. Yeah. And it, it went hand in hand with the characters. Right. And with the entire mood and feel of the show. Right. Without the music, it would be a whole different show. Yeah. Yeah. So it's great. And talk about YouTube videos. You know, it's always fun to see some of those videos where like they just change the the film composition. All of a sudden it goes from being like a horror movie to a romantic comedy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But changing the music. That just shows you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Though that that shows you. I mean, what would Jaws be just without the da 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 da? I mean. That was John Williams, right? I mean, that that was John Williams. Jeez, yeah. we're talking about legendary composers, man. I mean, just so simple but so perfect. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Speaking of, did we talk about the new Disney podcast? Whoa, talk about being ahead of the curve, my friend. And I was reading that on the way in here today, and I discovered that that this Friday, according to Variety. Uh, Disney Music Group, in association with Tree Fort Media, will debut a podcast, Four Scores, all about music composers and interviews with with some of the top working. Obviously, they all work for Disney. I think that's part of it. (laughs) You know, poor composers work for Disney. They got to do Marvel movies and they got to do Pixar movies. So it's rough life. <laughs> but they're actually uh, doing a, a big podcast supposed to launch on Friday the 23rd uh, called Four Scores. Uh, that's August 23rd. That podcast will be dropping. So I, I definitely suggest listen to ours, listen to theirs, and let us know what you think. Who wore it better? We're going to have our <laughs> spinoff, our composer yeah. yes. podcast. We definitely spin-off. will. You know, but they've got guys like Alan Silvestri, who does all the Avengers movies. Uh, they've got... Uh, one of the first actually female composers i think um uh, as well so it's uh, a woman named pinar toprak who did captain marvel and pearl uh so she's she's very interesting i'd love to see you know sort of a a, a female composer take because uh, again just historically it's one of these male dominated industries it seems yeah. like so you know to see a woman working at the highest levels you know of the studio system is pretty cool we'd like to see that even more yeah i'm gonna listen to that for we sure you might have to poach her <laughs> Maybe. Miami. <laughs> Let's see if she has any Miami, Miami connections. I don't think so. She's from Turkey, apparently. Yeah. Turkey, Miami, Turkey, yeah. Miami. Same difference. <laughs> Strong coffee. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, they've got a bunch of other guys. Henry Jackman, who does a lot of Pixar movies. He did Ralph Breaks the Internet, Wrecked Ralph, Big Hero Six. So it's uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be really cool. I'm I'm excited to hear it. So, I uh, I think that we are on trend, my friend. Yes, as they say. Yes. And speaking of trends, once upon a time in Hollywood. Whoa! Did you see that? We started talking about that movie, the very first podcast. How's it gonna do? Is it gonna do well? Are people gonna respond? 
I said that it was going to be one of his biggest selling movies. I don't know if you remember that. That's right. <laughs> called it. And look, Boom. 200 million international. That's uh, that's a big draw for a not not superhero movie. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, not not even close. Not even yeah, but still, you know, that's that's I think that's a good run. I think that now Sony can safely say that the gamble paid off. You know, because yeah, it was an expensive production. Again, it wasn't the brand there was Tarantino. The hope that he had enough of a following that would carry. Yeah, it, but I know. also have to say that Brad Pitt. Well, doesn't hurt. That doesn't hurt. DiCaprio. DiCaprio. And really, the relationship between the two of them right. in that film. Right. Yeah. I'd like fantastic. to see more films with the two of them. Oh, yeah. And Margot Robbie, she was great. Man, yeah. she really she nailed Sharon Tate. Like, if you see any archival footage of Sharon, uh-huh. she just nailed it. Yeah. They had a bit of controversy, you know, uh, with the whole Bruce Lee thing. Yeah. I wrote about that. I wasn't too happy about that. Really? Either. <laughs> well, I, you know, and I, I understand, you know, I think if you, if they were doing a biofilm, but I think part of the idea, and this is just me, of Once Upon a Time is that it is a fantasy set within someone's reality, but it's not yeah. a historical drama in that sense. No, yeah. I mean, and, you know, Tarantino has done these departures before. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, Revisionist and Glorious Bastards, mm-hmm. you know, so there, you know, there's no issue with that. For me, it was more. And Inglorious Bastards, you know, it was Nazis. So, right. you know, Nazis. Yeah, people didn't mind kicking a Nazi down. <laughs> but now you take a screen legend like Bruce Lee and everybody's like, whoa, hands off, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, so that was kind of a tough one. Yeah. But, you know, it was, you know, this uh, marker on that particular character, right. on, on uh, Brad Pitt's character. And the way that he navigates and, you know, on his toughness Mm. and, you know, his ability to uh, take a situation and turn it upside down. So I can give it that. It was an entertaining moment. Right. But, you know, Bruce Lee is arguably one of the biggest um, minority legends. Mm in Hollywood history. So, sure. you know, it's kind of a touch and go situation. It's, it's a touch and go. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I completely fell into the fantasy of the movie. So I tried to separate the real Bruce Lee from the character portrayed in the movie. So I, I was able to kind of distance myself from the actual actor, but, well, you know, like I said, people have, but either way, wherever, I, I think that ultimately that pub- extra publicity just sparked a certain curiosity and people wanted yeah. to see the film. Yeah. And not just that, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. So I think it also, you know, sparks an interest in Bruce Lee mm-hmm. and perhaps people, you know, going back to see more about what Bruce Lee was all about. Sure. Enter the Dragons, one of my favorite films. Yeah. My gosh. Yeah. I mean, obviously legendary movies. And I, I think hopefully at least the controversy sparks some curiosity for some younger viewers who are not familiar with Bruce Lee and his work right. and go back and see some of his original interviews and some of his original films and kind of, you know, just kind of re-sparking interest in that particular actor and in that particular genre. Yeah. And a movement. I mean, Bruce yeah. Lee was more about a movement than, you know, any particular film or just the martial arts. Yeah. So. yeah. You see, got us talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> the Green Hornet. Yes. That was a fun campy show. I love the camp of Tarantino movies and, and how he kind of recognizes the camp in some of those older TV shows that just don't exist anymore. Um, but yeah, those are fun times. I think if you were alive and kicking in Hollywood in the late 60s, 
fifties. You had some fun. That's a little bit before my time, but way before. <laughs> way, way before. Okay, I said a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> way before our times. But yeah. we're timeless here at Screen Heat Miami, yeah, right? Yeah, it's all it's all entertainment, man. You gotta. I think you have to know where you're from to know where you're going. Yeah, that's my deal. Yeah. And speaking of going, mm. where are we going next? Oh yeah, we have an interview next week. Yes. What are we thinking? Let's go into our Rolodex of interviews and just pull one. That's how random we are on the show. We just literally go into our 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 stockpile of interviews and just pull one out at random. Yes, but we do have someone magical for next week. Surprise mystery guest. You have to go to ScreenHeatMiami.com and find out. Teaser. Yeah, stay tuned. You never know who's going to pop up on Screen Heat Miami, but we're excited about bringing this podcast to you each and every week and i want to obviously want to thank our guest today carlos rafael rivera if you're listening you're amazing i said it in the interview but i'll say it again the fact that he's also a professor that he's he's giving back to the community he's mentoring young composers i think that we need much more of that so that was fantastic and a great job to kevin sharply for bringing him into the podcast family uh and we're always out there looking for for talent that's willing to share their experiences on the show much more to come. That's right. So, on behalf of Kevin, JL, our amazing sponsors, we'll see you on the next Screen Heat Miami. Yes. Not Kevin, but Kevin. Did I say Kevin? <laughs> you did. Kevin? <laughs> I meant Kevin. <laughs> like borrow from Karen Hall. Uh, Kevin? That's it. You hit my Kentucky roots. There you go. Kevin Sharpley. All right. Yeehaw. <laughs> on the, we'll leave it on the Western. Yeehaw. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs>